Kevin is the guy who has the hood on. We're just waiting for the uh, mechanical. We're on? Okay, thank you. Well, good morning, everyone. Good to see you. Glad to have you here as we continue with our saga of studying Genesis 1 through 3 by bringing in the entire Bible to demonstrate that the rest of the Bible is about the fulfillment of what God has begun in Genesis 1 and 2, lost in chapter 3, and then the history of his regaining his intention through types and shadows and through circumstances and through uh, uh, experiences and people being raised up and nations being raised up who would carry his image through their obedience, filling the earth with the glory of God, overcoming, subduing, having dominion, failing, going into exile, being delivered from exile, continuing, and all of that is a cyclical kind of an activity, showing what God is doing, showing what he wants to do, showing that man cannot do it. Sin continues to come in until finally we we come to the New Testament where God finally has upon the earth the only man who can and does fulfill his Genesis 126 desire. Let us make man, one man, in our image and after our likeness. And in that one man who is in the image and likeness of God, because of who that man is and what that man will do, therefore all of God's people can be and will become incorporated into that one man, being given and then sharing that nature, that righteousness, that image of that one man, so that God, one day, in culmination, which we see in Revelation 21 and 22, in culmination, will in fact have a people in his image and after his likeness. Why? Because they are in the image and likeness of the one man who has established and has won the day and has won the right to have God's people together before the throne of God, right? That's what the Bible is all about. And so you see this cyclical activity and movement forward. This morning, what we're going to do is talk about the qualifications. What qualifies Jesus to be what we saw last week? You remember last week, we introduced Jesus as what? In three categories. What were the three categories? The seed of the woman, the last Adam, and the Davidic king. You must have been here last week. Gwen got them all. Now look, look, let's remember this. This is the way that God accomplishes his purpose. And we must see this in order to understand the Old Testament and in order to understand the activity of the fulfillment in the new. God is going to restore. He's going to make sure that his intention in the creation is going to be fulfilled. Nothing will stop God. No sin, no rebellion, no opposition, no circumstance, no problem, no nothing stops God. Can you say amen? amen. That, that should be great for us because in our own lives, there are things that are happening that may seem to us as if they're going to what? Stop God. Have you ever had that thought? And yet the history of thousands upon thousands of years is this. Nothing stops God. He always does and will 
fulfill his promises. And so we saw that in this one person who was proclaimed as the second Adam or the last Adam, who was proclaimed as the seed of the woman, who was proclaimed as the Davidic king. In this one person, all of God's intentions will come to fruition, culminating in this one man. And in this one man, God's full intention will be fulfilled forever in his new kingdom, in the new heaven and the new earth as they join together, as they become one. Being separated today, but one day becoming one. So this morning I want to talk about some of the qualifications. And let me say this. I plan to be finished this series the last Sunday in September. And I really do. Seriously, I think we're going to do that. But what I want to caution you about is this. Sometimes it seems as if it's not as exciting and revelatory just hearing some scriptures, this, 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 okay, that, that. Uh, but, you know, I, I want explanation. I want to be, what do you call it, uh, enthused? When you go to a class and it's really good, what do we call that word? Inspired. Nothing should inspire us like the word of God being seen as fulfilled. Amen? So today I want to go into these three qualifications, this triad. You remember what a triad is? Three qualifications. And I want to just share scriptures with us, maybe make some comments. And I want to share maybe not even a lot of scriptures. For some of you, it may feel like a lot. Because I want to make sure, I feel the Holy Spirit wants to make sure that he inundates us, floods us, fills us with scripture, with the authority and the knowledge of his word. So when the enemy comes against us, we are like trees of righteousness where our roots are not in what our feelings and our circumstances dictate, but our roots are solidly grown down deep, infused into and held by the power and the, of the knowledge of the Word of God. Amen? So that's why we do that. So that's why some classes will be much more uh, word-driven. Hopefully all of us word-driven, but word-saturated and other classes may not. I think today's class, like last week, would be one of those more word-saturated classes. And by the way, I do want to make this uh, offer to you. Uh, all these notes, you notice that my notes are more extensive than yours. Have you ever noticed that? Uh, that that's how we all do. We, we give you an outline. Some of you may actually want the total notes that any of us do, that I would do. At least I make mine available, I'm sure. Evan and some of the others would do so also. So if you want that, you know, all you have to do is let Evan know. I would like a complete set of the notes that Peter himself uses for this teaching. And we'll make sure we duplicate those for you. We're not ready to do that yet. We'd have to, you know, get them all together. We have them in the computer. But we'd be willing to do that. But that's where you're going to see a lot of the <clears throat> references of the word in there that even are not in your notes. I always pepper everything with that. So let's go ahead. This morning we want to look at the qualifications, a triad of qualifications that show that Jesus is. What qualifies Jesus to be the seed? What qualifies him to be the last Adam? What qualifies Jesus to be the, the Davidic king? What qualifies him 
People are going to be asking him, us, what qualifies Jesus as this Messiah, as this Christ, as this Deliverer? What qualifies him? And we as believers must know some of these things. So there are going to be three issues that fundamentally are required that Jesus is these three together issues or truths that qualify him. He has to be the divine Son of God. He has to be a human being, his humanity. And third, he has to be obedient. Those three, that triad, qualify Jesus for being who he is and qualifies him to be the one whom God will use to rescue his people from their exile and sin and bring them into the community of God, the kingdom of God. Each one of these qualifications, each one is essential to the fulfillment of God's purpose in Christ, each being one part of a whole. So let's make sure that we don't, if you would, overemphasize one over the other. There is certainly a basis here, which we'll start out first. But if one of these three is not present, then the entire thing goes. You know how you have a three-legged table. Remove one leg of the table, and will it stand? It will not stand. Isn't that an interesting way of seeing something about the Trinity? Remove one leg and it won't stand. So what are the three qualifications? What makes Jesus the seed? What makes Jesus the last Adam? What makes Jesus the Davidic king? Why can the Bible, why can we, what qualifies him for us to say this? He is divine. He is human. And he's obedient. So let's first of all look at his divinity. Let's look at some of the scriptures. Jesus' divinity is the basis and the context in which the other two facets, in which the other true truths, his humanity and his obedience, are possible and function and are made effective. Jesus' divinity is the basis and the context in which the other two facets, what are they, or the other two truths, his humanity and his obedience, are made possible, operate a function, and are made effective. So who is Jesus? Well, succinctly put, Jesus is the second person of the Godhead. He is co-eternal with the Father and with the Spirit. Jesus is fully God within himself, but not by himself. Having always existed, he is fully God in himself, fully God, but not by himself, just as the Father and just as the Spirit. And so that's just a very quick comment about that. You know we've taught on some of this before, and we've taken a lot more time to elaborate, but we won't do so this morning. So what is the first issue that we emphasize this morning of the triad? The first issue that produces and moves the entire truth and work of God forward is this, that Jesus is himself divine. The uncreated God. He is not like the Jehovah's Witness say, a created being. You see, because he's part of the Godhead. Within himself, fully God. Now, because Jesus is the divine Son of God, and I think you have some of these in your notes, if I can remember. Because Jesus is the divine Son of God, because of that, he himself reveals the very nature and character of God. Remember John 14, verse 9. I had that, I think, in your notes. Remember that? Philip says, show us the Father. Remember, Jesus is going away. I'm going away. 
And what does Philip say? Show us a father and we'll be satisfied. And what does Jesus say? Philip, have I been with you for all these years, three and a half or four years, whatever it's been. I've been with you all this time, and you're going to ask me to show you the Father? What is this statement? If you have seen me, you have seen the Father. So Jesus is the only one who reveals the Father. And by the way, the Father in the New Testament is God. Typically, the word God means the Father most of the time. Once in a while it doesn't, but anytime you see the word <clears throat> God in the New Testament, it refers specifically to the Father. So, because Jesus is divine, He propitiates the wrath of God. He puts it aside. He absorbs it so we won't have to have it against us. Because He's the divine Son, He destroys the works of the devil. He breaks sin's authority at the cross. He rises from the dead. In fact, what is the quintessential proof that Jesus is the Son of God? What is the single proof? Not that he did miracles, because there are false and lying miracles in the world, aren't there? Not that people came to him and were astounded by him. These were kind of signs, but they weren't proofs. Not that he said, I am the Son of God, or whatever he said. Not that he preached good sermons. Not even that he died on a cross. That is not the proof. All of that moves toward and assigns of the proof, but the proof occurs on the day of resurrection. Jesus did not stay in the grave. He rose again. His body was trans trans whatever it was changed into an eternal body and he rose again the old body that he had the body that he had in the original creation being conceived by the holy spirit in mary was totally changed into a brand new body it looked the same he had the scars he was still about whatever height he was he had the hair the nose the eyes you know the legs and whatever but it was totally transformed into a heavenly body he rose from the dead. If you are in a discussion about the validity and the truth of Christianity, <clears throat> you can share a whole lot of stuff, and you should. But there's one thing you must make sure you share upon which all the other rests, and that is what? The resurrection. You must share the resurrection as the quintessential proof just go to chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians, and Paul will deal with that, and you'll see the, some of the significance. He rises from the dead. Because he's the eternal Son of God, he gives us eternal life. He brings us into fellowship with God. He establishes the church. He promises to return, and he will create a new heaven and a new earth. So how is Jesus presented as divine in the New Testament? What are just a few of the ways? And we only want to talk about a few of the ways. There are many more than this, but... I didn't want to spend the whole time on just this one subject, although I was very tempted to do this. So we'll share just a few thoughts here concerning what does the New Testament show us about the divinity of Jesus? Well, first of all, Jesus himself refers to himself as divine. Now, you see, there's some folks who say Jesus never claimed to be divine. Well, they haven't read the Bible clearly. 
They haven't understood the references that Jesus makes. He does not stand on the hill and say, I'm divine, I'm divine, I'm divine. He doesn't do that. But he does loudly and clearly and consistently declare his oneness with God the Father, his divinity in the use of other terminology and in the activity of what he's doing. Everything about this is a declaration that I am the Son of God. I am divine. I am eternal in myself. Everything he says, specifically some uh, terminology, all that he does is a loud proclamation that this is not just another man, a good man, a really wonderful speaker. Wow, look at how great he is. He's so loving. This is a declaration that this is God himself in the flesh. So what are some of these things? First, John records, remember, that Jesus uses ego eimi, the Greek of I am. Every time you see the I am in John, the Gospel of John, there are seven times that Jesus refers to himself as I am. And I think there's a list. Is there a list in your uh, material there? I am the bread of life. You, you, do you see some of that? I am the light of the world. I am the door. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection of life and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And I am the vine, or the true vine. The vine, comma, the true. That's how it is in the Greek. John records Jesus seven different times using this I am with a predicate. Uh-oh. With a descriptive word, I am, and then there's something there. I am the bread. I am the door. Now, these are references that Jesus is making using common terminology to tell us something about himself. I'm not just another guy. I'm not just a preacher. I'm not just a man telling you something about God. I am in myself totally, completely unique among all human beings. I mean, I can't stand here and say, I am the door to life. I am the resurrection. I am whatever. Then you should say, well, the last I am is I am crazy. You know, that's what I should end with if I said any of that. But only Jesus can say this. Why? Why can he say this? Why can he be so self-proclaiming and not be arrogant? Why? Because it's the truth. In fact, if he were not self-proclaiming, he would be a liar. How many of you heard of ego? Well, ego, Amy. Ego, ego is pronounced. I, my, me. And any of us who promote I, my, me, we would have to say, brother, you need to get a little better humility around you. This is not about I, my, me. Only God himself can proclaim himself and say about himself what is true and be humble. Why? Because it's the truth. You see? Because it's the truth. None of us can do that. Why? It ain't true. Other than the fact that we can say, I am in Christ, I am forgiven, I am because of the putative righteousness of Christ, the righteousness of Christ, I am saved. We can do those things, but when it comes to who we are intrinsically and what we do, you know, in and of ourselves, mm, we better be careful. So, I am, ego amy. Now, what's the significance of ego amy? Okay, Jesus says I am. There's a whole lot more about this that we could say, but we, we don't want to do that this morning. What is so significant, especially in John's gospel, of I am, I am? Well, I am, ego amy, is the Greek rendering of the personal name of God 
Yahweh given to Moses in chapter 3 of Exodus. Listen to this as I quote this. Then Moses said to God, remember the burning bush? Some of you remember that? Okay. Then God, Moses said to God, if I come to the people, remember the Lord said, I'm sending you to deliver the people. If I come to the people and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, they're going to ask, hey, who? What's his name? Now, there's a lot in that question which we won't go into. Specifically, though, it talked about in the name is a designation of the character and the ability and the purpose. That's why they were asking, what's his name? I want, we want to know who he is, his character, his purpose, his ability. That's why they would ask, what's his name? And what shall I tell them? Moses doesn't know his name. Then God said to Moses, I am who I am. Say to the people, I am has sent you. I am. The Greek rendering that of that I am is egoemi. So here is Moses hearing from God Almighty himself at the burning bush. And the Lord says, tell them, I am hath sent you. Yah. Yah, J-H. Hallelujah. Yah. Praise to Yah. You know, that Yah ending in so many names. In fact, it's interesting, after you have this revelation, how many names of the people of Israel begin to end with the Yah. Elijah. Elijah. Yah. Ah. That's the name of God, the personal name of God. So just be aware of some of that. And so Jesus, using this I am, is doing what? When they are hearing this, they know that there's something bigger than him just saying, I am the bread of life. Wow, that's peculiar. I'm a door. Wow, that's strange. There is something going on here that Jesus is saying about himself way beyond the normal proclamation of I'm a door, I'm the light, I'm the way or whatever. He's proclaiming those things within the essence of something about his divinity. So in the use of ego ami, the I am, Jesus is declaring that he was or is the I am of the Old Testament. Do we get that? This is the God of the Old Testament covenanting with and moving in and leading and ministering to his people. This is that God who has become a man. This is that God. Look at the result. In John chapter 18, remember when Jesus was being arrested? And they're coming in, and Jesus and the disciples are there. And by the way, you need to read chapter 18 because you need to see who's really in charge of this arrest. When people tell you, oh, they arrested Jesus and they did this and that. No, Jesus is in charge. Hey, who are you looking for? They say, we're looking for Jesus of Nazareth. And what does he say? Look at your Bibles. What does it say? How many of the word, how many in your Bible the word he is in ital- italics, italics? Scratch it out. That's not, he didn't say he. He says, Ego Amy, I am. I am. He declares the name, the, he declares the covenant name of God Almighty that is given in Revelation to Moses in chapter 3 of Exodus, verse 14. And he says, I am. And when they heard that, what happened? They stood back and fell to the ground. Who? A cohort 
of soldiers, 100 soldiers were coming to arrest this one man. And when he says, I am, they all fell to the ground. Now something is going on here. Jesus is not being cornered and made to be, you know, looking like he was a victim here. Here is the God of glory declaring himself to say, when you arrest me, you annoying. You are arresting the God of glory, but he is allowing you to do this so that as Satan and death grab a hold of me, I will allow that for a moment and in my death I will grab back death and sin and hell and crush them all can you say amen louder that's right so he's saying bring it on bring it on and you'll find out what's going on here this is who he is John 8 24 and 8 58 Amazing and startling statements to these Jews. I, I don't blame the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the leaders to wanting to stone him. I don't blame them. They are monotheistic people. They believe that God is one, a single person God. And here it is, Jesus walking around proclaiming himself through this terminology to be one with God, to be God. And they're thinking, good night, this guy is creating a polytheism. Two gods hanging around here. And our God is not two. He's one because we remember Deuteronomy 6.4. They didn't understand the Trinity yet. And so they were opposed to him. And anyone should be opposed to him like this coming out of that battle background unless the Holy Spirit gives them a different revelation so let's not be too hard on them now they were hardened in their hearts they weren't interested but there were some of them who were opposed and who later on began to become unopposed because the Holy Spirit showed them this yes is God himself oh my word remember Paul remember Paul chapter 9 of Acts and so in chapter 8, uh, what is it? Chapter 8, verse 24. Jesus said, unless you believe that I am. Now, I in my Bible, when the little he is there, scratch it out because it shouldn't be there. Unless you believe that I am the God of the Old Testament, you're going to die in your sins. And then in 858, before Abraham was, was what? Born. Before Abraham existed, I am. And what is their response? They pick up stones to throw at him. Man, you, you're not only nuts, you're a blasphemer. We're getting rid of you. We're throwing you out. So, Jesus, even in his prayer in John, I mean, in John chapter 5, he's, he's calling God my Father. And the Bible says, and he was even calling God his own Father, making himself equal with God. John 17, 21, he says this, that they, the disciples for whom he's praying, that we're in that they, may all be one, just as you, <coughs> Father, you are in me and I in you. Only someone who is co-eternal and equal with God can say that. Matthew, remember, 24, 29 to 31, and 42 to 51, in chapter 25, 31 to 46, Jesus prophesies that he will return triumphant and that he will judge the nations. Remember the issue of Jesus healing on the Sabbath? Do you remember that? And forgiving sin? Only God can do this, and they knew that. Only God forgives sin. So who is this man who forgives sin? And what does Jesus do in one of the, um, I, I think it's Mark, I'm not sure. He says, so that you may know. 
that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sin. In other words, that you may know that I am the I am. Pick up your pallet and go walk. And the guy came up and walked away. Hallelujah. How do we know he's the Son of God? He rose, but how do I know it personally? Because he's told me to pick up my pallet because I was crippled in sin. And he saved me, and now I can get up and do what? I can go walking and leaping and praising God. Walking and leaping and praising God. Remember Acts 3? Remember that? How many of you have picked up your pallets and have gone walking now? Yes. See, you see what's going on here. God is bringing his people into his kingdom and fulfilling what he told Adam and Eve to do. Having failed through sin and for centuries, Jesus is now fulfilling the work of Adam, the purpose of God. Isn't this great? Isn't the word of God incredible? John 3.16 declares Jesus is the unique Son of God. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, only begotten. It has nothing to do with the sexual activity. It's monogenous, monogenous, M-O-N-O-G-E-N-E-S. In other words, mono how many? How many is mono? Genus is that word what? Genes. That's the substance of life, the who you are at the base of who, whatever. And so it is me. It, one gene, the same gene as God, the same person as God, the same life as God. When John says this, he's saying that God has sent himself in Christ. The same person, the same deity is now among us. It has nothing to do with sexual generation here. It has everything to do with oneness of character and life and equality and eternality. This is who this one is. Remember the angel referred to Jesus as divine by saying in Matthew 21 to Joseph, you shall call his name Jesus. Why? Well, if you were to go to Numbers 13, I think it's 13, 16. Now, do I have that in your notes? Yeah. 13, 16, what's happening? In 13, 16, you remember Moses and Joshua, you remember all that? There's a comment in 13, 16, and the word says, and Moses changed the name of Hosea, the son of Nun, to Joshua. Remember that? Well, what's so significant about that? Hosea means salvation. It means deliverer. The word Hosea means deliverer. And so what does Moses do? By revelation of God, I want you to change this man from just Hosea deliverer to Yah. Who? Who? Yah. Who's Yah? Exodus 3, 14. Come on. Who? Yah. Hosea. Yahshua. Or Yahshua, which in the English translates Jesus. The first part of his name is Yah. I am. Hosea, salvation. So what does this man's name mean? And what does Jesus mean? I am salvation or the Lord saves. Do you, do you get this? Yah. Get this name Yah. It's significant. You'll see it all over the place in the Old Testament. All over the place. Change his name from just Hosea to Yah Hosea. So Yahshua or Yahshua. 
which is translated Jesus. So why does the angel tell him? Call him Jesus. Why does Moses change Joshua's name, Hosea's name to Joshua? Because Joshua is a picture in that Old Testament terminology, in that Old Testament um, uh, time of a man and the man who will lead God's people out of the wilderness into the promised land. Just as Jesus will be God's man on earth who will lead us out of the kingdom of darkness, Colossians 1.13, into the kingdom of God's dear Son, into the new land, the promised land, the new heaven and the new earth, the kingdom of God. You see some of this. Okay. Jesus is called the Son of God 43 times in the New Testament. By the way, I do want to add this. I didn't put that in your notes. In the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible around 200 B.C., they were, cha- they were translating the Hebrew into the Greek because so many Jews were dispersed and living in Greek-speaking places and they weren't able to read the uh, Hebrew, so they put it in the vernacular of the day. So they put it in Greek. When it came to the personal name of God in the Hebrew, Yah, remember? Yah or Yahweh. The Jews at that time in the Babylonian captivity thought it was, his name was too holy to be said, so they put Adonai. Adonai became the Hebrew that represented and stood for the name of Yahweh. So when the Greek translates the Adonai of the Hebrew, which is in placement of Yahweh, are you following this? Yahweh is the original Hebrew. Changed by that time to Adonai because they didn't think they should be calling God's name like that. His personal name is too holy. So the Greek translates the Adonai of the Hebrew into kurios, K-U-R-I-O-S of the Greek. Kurios, does that say how? Kyrios. Who are you? You don't know anything. You're just a Greek. So it's Greek to me. Kurios, Kyrios, however it is. And so it's L-O-R-D. In your Old Testament, L-O-R-D. Capital L, lowercase cap, O-R-D is 6,800 plus times in the Old Testament. It is the Adonai, which should be Yahweh. So the Lord is my shepherd. What is that? Yahweh is my shepherd. Yah is my shepherd. Bless the Lord. Bless Yah, O my soul. You see, that's how that should be looked at. And so every time in the New Testament you see the word Lord, kurios or kyrios. Oh, I can't start changing now. I'm too old, brother. Every time you see the word Lord, it means Ruler, sovereign, master, or someone like that. 99% of the time, it is the word given, the, uh, the uh, terminology when it refers to Jesus, is the terminology that connects you to the Old Testament God of the Old Testament. So when it says Lord Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ is the Lord. And so Lord Jesus, it is saying this, that this person is the same God of the Old Testament. I didn't have that in your notes, so I'll throw it out to you. The apostles reference Jesus as divine, and I have some references here. So, first of all, the New Testament said he's divine. Now, let me race along. His humanity. Jesus must become a man. So, here's some three references. I think I only gave you three here for his humanity, or maybe four. First Timothy 2.5. There is one God, and there is one mediator between God and man, the man Jesus Christ. First John 4.2. Remember, they were saying... After the resurrection, Jesus was not really a literal man. It was just a phantom. It was a ghost or whatever. You know, he, he just wasn't really flesh and blood. It was one of these mirages. So John is 
participate, I mean, coming against this, and he says every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God because he said a couple of times, if you don't believe this, you're a liar. So Jesus came as a real man, as a real, genuine human being. Hebrews 2.17, therefore Jesus had to be made like his brothers in every respect. He had to be made like his brothers in every respect. It was a requirement, and we'll just for a moment say something about that. Philippians 2, 6 and 7, remember about have this mind in you or this attitude in you, which was also in Christ. Remember, Paul is kind of giving this, this pouring, this hymn to the church. And in 6 and 7, talks about Jesus, even though he was in the form of God. In other words, he was God eternal. He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. He didn't say, I'm God, I'm God, I'm God. He wasn't trumpeting his, his uh, divinity at this point. But he made himself nothing. He took on the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. As a man, he came. He was a real, genuine human being. So this is called, what is this called when Jesus is conceived by the Holy Spirit in Mary and then Rima goes through the pregnancy, is born, and lives until the cross when he dies? What is this called, this term? The incarnation. Incarnation. Enfleshment. It's in flesh. Carnal means flesh. It's the Greek for flesh. In the incarnation, when he became a man, the eternal Son of God became a real human being. He clothed himself with our humanity. Now, this is a mystery. How does the person of the Son of God and the person of the man Jesus coexist as one? I don't have a fig of an understanding here. I couldn't tell you to save my life. What we know here is in this one man, you have the nature and person of the Son of God, and you have the nature and person of a human being, together in one, together in one. I don't know how that works. If you do, please let us know. I don't know how it works. And if you say, well, this can't be, this can't be. If God is a trinity, this is. If this can't be, God is not a trinity. The two are connected, you see, as one truth. But because of this, why does it become a man? Here is extremely important, and we're not going to be able to develop this very much. But here is the reason he becomes a man. He must represent us and be our substitute. He must represent us and be our substitute. As one man disobeyed, and all men in him came under the condemnation of sin. You remember Romans 5, 12. As one man disobeyed, in order for God to have humanity to be restored as his people, another man must come and must in himself obey, thus fulfilling God's required mandate that he gave to Adam in 2.15 of Genesis. So that when that man obeys, all of God's people who are in him, represented, are now in him when he pays for their sin at the cross. 
He is not only their representative head. We are not only in him. But then when he goes to the cross, he dies in our stead. And he takes unto himself, 2 Corinthians 5, 21, all, how much? All, how much? All of our sin, all of the curse, all of our fallenness, all of the guilt, all of the penalty, and absorbs all the wrath of God which was due to us so that in his death, God fully and finally and forever is satisfied having dealt justly with man's sin in Christ who represents all of us. Why can he represent all of us? Because he is the creator of all of us. Therefore, the creator can represent us all. Therefore, you see, God can forgive us. Amen? So why does he become a man? Crucial! He cannot be our representative and our substitute other than he is a real man. So this is why you see so much attack against his humanity. Do you see these things that come out, and he did this and he did that and he wasn't? Do you see the attacks? Why? Satan wants to undo the truth of Jesus' real humanity. And if he can undo the truth of Jesus' real humanity, we have no hope. And he was not only a human, Jesus was a perfectly obedient man. Hebrews 4.15, for we do not have a high priest, Jesus the priest. Hopefully we'll get into some of that about Adam's priestliness. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but who in every respect has been tempted as we are tempted, yet without sin. Philippians 2.8, being found in human form. Remember Jesus, he took on the form of a human. Remember that? Not grasping equality with God. He humbled himself by becoming what? Obedient. How much obedient? Obedient unto the point of death, even death on a cross. Adam's mandate to be obedient, to keep the covenant of works, Adam, I'm going to give you the opportunity that you and your progeny, your relatives, your kids, will fill the earth with my glory and rule and reign in my name, thus proclaiming my majesty and my sovereignty and my you know, greatness throughout all the earth as you rule and reign and take dominion over the earth by being fruitful and multiplying. I'm going to give you this, this as my image bearer. This is who you're going to be. And every bit of it is going to be able to be accomplished on the basis of one thing. I am the king, and as my vice regent, you must, if you're going to represent me and faithfully declare me and do what I want you to do, you must, be, you must be obedient. So I don't want you to eat of the fruit of that tree. I don't want you to do that. You must be obedient. And if you are obedient, then God, we believe, would have taken Adam into a place some kind of a way where he and his progeny would have actually succeeded, but he didn't. Adam had to win the day through his obedience. He lost that. Therefore, Jesus comes 
as the Son of God, as a human being, and He wins the day. He keeps the covenant of works or the covenant of creation that was given to Adam. Jesus keeps it Himself. And as a result of that, now God can create a new creation, a new kingdom, and bring His people into this kingdom on the basis of the eternal obedience of the Son of God so that God will see His people as fully forgiven in the death and resurrection of Christ and as righteous having been clothed with the righteousness of Christ in the resurrection by the Holy Spirit which is given to us His righteousness when the Holy Spirit saves us and therefore we stand before God as a people in God's sight who are not guilty of sin. I didn't say innocent. I said not guilty of sin and who are eternally righteous and accepted in God, before God, on the same basis and are as righteous and accepted as righteous with the righteousness of His own Son. Whew. Is not that mind-blowing? And they tell me this is a fairy tale. Nobody in their right mind, and even in their wrong mind, would have ever come up with this. Next week we'll start looking at some of the things that Jesus did to accomplish this. See you next week.